Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. I hope you have your Bible in front of you, and we'll be going through this verse by verse all the way through chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians tonight. So the first four chapters have been all about church unity. Paul is writing in response to a letter that was sent to him by the Corinthians with some specific questions uh, some specific items that they needed advice on. And he doesn't actually get to their specific requests until chapter 7. Instead, he's got some things that he wants to address that he's heard about them from others in the church. And so if the first four chapters bored you because you felt that the topic of church unity was a little bit touchy-feely and that's not really where you want to be, Number one, it's the Bible, so get a grip. But number two, you're really going to like uh, this chapter because it gets very confrontational and very spicy. Um, chapter five is about the subject of church discipline. Now, if you're of a certain age, let me just say, if you're younger than me, quite a bit younger than me, you may be completely unfamiliar with the topic of church discipline. If you're my age or older, you've probably heard stories of church discipline. I will say that... It is a rare thing today, and there are reasons for that rarity. Uh, one of the reasons is, one of the flaws, one of the weaknesses of American Christianity is we're very individualistic. We've been taught from basically cradle, uh, from the cradle role and, and from preschool, that it's all about my personal relationship with Jesus, and that's what counts. That's what matters. We forget that we're part of the body of Christ. And so what happens in the body is important. It's more important than just what happens to us. Remember, I've said this many times, the, the word you in Scripture is often y'all. Y'all is a biblical word. God is not just talking to individual Christians. He's talking to Christians together, to whole churches. And so we're so individualistic, we resent the idea that our church could come to us and say, you need to straighten out in this area of your life. Our response would be... Why should I listen to you? I, you're here to serve me. I, I come to you for, so you can educate my children in the faith, so you can give me spiritual nurture, so you can be a, of service to me. I, I don't expect to be of service to you, and we've got it backwards. Our church really does possess, in God's eyes, spiritual authority over us. And, and so for that reason, because we're so individualistic and people just don't they don't expect to be confronted by their church family. And so it's rarely done today. I know of two, two cases, uh, two, two situations of church discipline that I'm personally acquainted with. I'm not talking about things I've read in books or heard about in articles or sermons. Uh, one was, uh, this was years ago, I, I pastored a church where a man had joined our congregation and he told me a story. He used to be the song leader at a church, another church in that same town. He was the worship leader. Didn't get paid for it. He was volunteer. He was also married to the chairman of their elders, and they got a divorce. And it wasn't a divorce where he left her. It was a divorce where she came to him and said, you need to move out because I'm done being married to you. But because she was the elder's daughter and he was just the son-in-law, the elder came to him and said, divorce is wrong. You have to leave our church. Now, this put this man, uh, that would be painful enough as it is, but it put him in a really tough position because he had been taught ever since he joined that church that if you didn't go to that church, you weren't saved. And he was especially taught if you go to that Baptist church, 
whatever salvation you had before is gone. And so it took him a long time, a long time to come to our church because he thought, when I walk through those doors, my salvation might be gone. So that was an instance of church discipline that I think we can all agree was unbiblical and, and unchristlike and and not positive in any sense. There's a second story I have, uh, and this is a, another church, a, not a church I pastored, but a, a friend was pastor of a church in a small town, and there was there were some black children who had started attending that church, and a member of that church took it upon himself to visit the the families of those children and tell them, you know, there are churches where people like you go, and you need to send your kids to those churches, not to ours. Our church is a church for white people, which I think we can all agree is a, is a disgusting sin. And so my friend, my fellow pastor, felt compelled, uh, and he followed the procedures of Matthew 18, to deal with this. And the man was unrepentant. He led his church to vote to uh, eject this man from church membership. And I, I believe that he did what was right. But what happened next was a lot of people left his church. And it wasn't because they thought this man was right to do what he did. They just thought that the pastor overstepped his authority. And they said things like, you know, his mom still goes to our church. And don't, don't you know how hurtful that was to her? And don't you think we could have handled this a different way, a better way, a less, a less hurtful way? And so here was a guy who I think was standing on the side of righteousness, doing what was good and biblical, and yet it ended up costing him in terms of people in his church leaving. And so again, that's another reason why church discipline is so rare today. There's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of uh, lay leaders in churches who will see a situation that requires confrontation and discipline and say, yeah, but the cost is just so high. So with that introduction, let's read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what he's talking about there, uh, it's pretty obvious is a man is in a, involved in a sexual relationship with either his mother or his stepmother. And, and Paul says it's the kind of sin that is not tolerated even among pagans. So it doesn't really give us any clarity on whether it was a mom or stepmom. Either way, it was, it was wicked. It was evil. And they haven't done anything about it. Now, why would Paul say they're arrogant? They're arrogant because he says you should be mourning over this. This should be grieving your souls. Note that that should be the emotion that we have when we hear that one of our brothers and sisters, brothers or sisters, is involved in a public, persistent, unrepentant sin. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be judgmental. It shouldn't be self-righteous. It shouldn't be hateful. It shouldn't be superior. It should be weeping and mourning. Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, we'll get to it when we weeks down the road when we, we get to 2 Corinthians 11. But in 2 Corinthians 11, it's this famous chapter where Paul talks about all the things he has sacrificed for the sake of Christ. And he talks about being beaten. He talks about being stoned to death, or almost to death. He talks about uh, being shipwrecked. He talks about being imprisoned and starving and being in poverty. And then he says these words, And apart from those things... 
There's the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? What Paul is saying is, as hard as it is to be beaten for the sake of Christ, to be imprisoned for the sake of Christ, to go hungry, to be poor for the sake of Christ, it's just as hard for me to find out that someone in one of the churches I planted has fallen away from Christ and is pursuing persistent, unrepentant sin in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And that brings me such heartbreak that it's just as bad as being locked in a jail cell. It's just being just as bad as being tied to a post and beaten 39 times. And that's the way we should respond. Because if we don't, we're displaying arrogance. If we don't respond to the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ with weeping, then we're saying, you know, what they do doesn't really matter. It's just me and the Lord. And that's arrogance. That's what Paul's saying. He goes on. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I'll admit, this is one of the harder passages to understand in the whole New Testament. There's some, there's some really mysterious stuff going on here, some things that aren't really familiar to us as modern-day Christians. But let me point out a few things. Number one, I want to point out that Paul is an apostle. An apostle is more than a pastor. It's more even than what, we, what some denominations would call a bishop or an elder. Um, Paul's apostleship means that Jesus himself had designated Paul to represent him on earth, to, to carry a particular kind of authority that no non-apostle ever will. In other words, any human preacher who says, I have authority to judge this man, kind of like my friend at, uh, at the church I used to pastor, whose, whose elder told him, you're out of this church, you're out of God's fellowship. He was out of line in saying that. He didn't have that kind of authority. Paul does. Paul is a representative of Jesus Christ. He's been designated an apostle, and he can say, I have judged this man. My spirit will be with you. Those are, those are the kinds of terms that a, a human pastor like me doesn't have the right to say. Secondly, he says, you need to deliver this man over to Satan. Now, that really opens our eyes, doesn't it? What is he talking about here? Let me just clarify. This is not saying send this man to hell or condemn him or take away his salvation. This is not about his salvation at all. There's no sin you can commit other than the sin of denying Jesus himself. That's the unforgivable sin mentioned in the Gospels. There's no sin you can commit that means you're going to lose what you have. You lose uh, the forgiveness that Christ purchased for you at the cross. That's not what he's talking about. It's not talking about what we would call excommunication in the Roman Catholic faith. What he's talking about is cutting this person off from the fellowship of God's people. And by the way, just as a side note, remember this letter that Paul was writing was going to be read in Corinth in that church by the pastor of that church with everyone listening. So picture the Sunday morning or the Sunday evening, whenever they happen to meet, when that letter was read. And this man is sitting there in the congregation, maybe with the, his stepmother slash uh, lover beside him. And can you imagine how he felt hearing this? I mean, he's hearing the truth spoken about him. And the church, it, Paul is telling the church, cut this man off. Deliver him over to the devil. 
Right now, he is under the protection of the Lord because he is part of a fellowship of believers. He has your support. He has your prayer support. He has your uh, encouragement. He has your influence. But cut him off from all of that and let him experience life on his own. In other words, let him experience what life is like on the path he is choosing. He's choosing to live his life apart from God's plan. Let him experience the full extent of that. And by the way, when you look at Scripture and you think about the judgment of God, usually the judgment of God is not God inflicts people with some kind of illness or some kind of pain. He just lets them have the natural consequences of what they've chosen. He chooses not to protect them anymore. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do for this man. The third thing in this passage, in this little section that we just read, when he says, for the destruction of his flesh. Again, not a familiar term, not something you're used to hearing in churches today. What he's saying is, we're hoping that he's going to experience physically and emotionally the consequences of his choices in such a way that he'll be brought back to salvation. Right now, his flesh is in charge. Right now, he is letting his flesh make all the decisions, but turn him over to the devil, cut him off from fellowship so he'll see his flesh get destroyed. He'll see that letting the flesh lead is a terrible idea, and he'll come back home. The, the picture is of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes away, and at first he's following his flesh, and he's having a great time because he's got all this money, and everybody's eating and drinking and having a good time with him, and all the women want to be with him. He's the life of the party, but then when the money dries up, all of his friends disappear. He suddenly becomes much less, much less attractive to those ladies. And he suddenly realizes his flesh has led him in the wrong direction. The way the parable says it is, when he came to his senses, he thought about what he had back home and he started for his father. And that's what Paul is hoping for right here. That's the destruction of the flesh. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the, whole, the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, these verses are going to sound mysterious, not like anything you've heard in uh, most Christian churches these days. The difference is we know what this is talking about because it's referring to something specific from the Old Testament. You probably know this. If you're watching me, you're probably a serious Bible student. But just for those who may not know, the, the people of God in Israel were commanded to celebrate the Passover every year, this, this remembrance, this celebration of the day that God delivered them from slavery. They ate the 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 meat of the lamb, they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, the death angel passed over them, and so they were spared. And so every year they would eat this Passover meal. Uh, we believe that Jesus' Last Supper was a Passover meal. Part of the celebration, they, if you read Exodus and Leviticus, you know there's a lot of detail that went into the Passover celebration. Part of it was the week before you celebrated Passover, you were to remove leaven or yeast from your entire house. Not, you weren't just supposed to make unleavened bread the night of the meal. You had to get rid of all the leaven, all the yeast in your house. Why? Because 
leaven represented sin. And, and so, you know, you think about a, a great loaf of bread or a dinner roll or a cinnamon roll uh, or, you know, pizza crust. The things that we love about those kinds of breads is they've risen. They've got some depth, some thickness to them. And yeast makes that happen. So in a spiritual sense, that's what sin does in our lives. It changes us. We are this way, and then sin enters us, and we take a brand new shape. In a congregation, yeast, uh, sin can spread through a church and can change the character of that church and can destroy the witness that that church has to the community. The Jews were supposed to get rid of the leaven in their house once a year at Passover time as a reminder. We're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be God's people. We're supposed to represent him well. So what is, why does Paul therefore say, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed? Well, obviously he's talking about Jesus. The Bible is very clear about that. Hebrews especially makes the point that Jesus is our once and for all time Passover lamb. It's why we as Christians don't celebrate Passover every year like the Israelites did. Paul's point is, and this is beautiful, we don't need to get rid of sin in our lives so that God will consider us holy. God already considers us holy. He considers us holy not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our Passover lamb has already died. We are holy. Therefore, we should deal with the sin in our lives and in our churches. Paul says, deal with this brother because you're God's people Act like it. And then we go to the last section, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. It's funny, there was no such thing as space travel in Paul's day, but he basically references it here. You'd have to get on a rocket and leave this world. If you want to get away from sinful people entirely, the only way is to leave the planet Earth. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul mentions in an earlier letter, he says, I, I wrote to you earlier, to avoid spending time with sinful people, but you took it the wrong way, Paul says. You you meant that you meant you took it as though I meant you need to separate yourselves from the sinful people of this world, and that's not what I mean. You're supposed to be in this world, but you're not supposed to be like this world. Stop judging the world and start judging yourselves. So three things, uh, three things to sum up this passage, and then we'll be done. Number one. We've been talking about unity since we started this study weeks ago. And here we see for sure that unity is much more than simply keeping the peace. I said it before, a lot of churches think they're unified because there's not a lot of drama in the church, because people get along, because there's not yelling and anger and, and tears. But that's not unity. Unity means you're headed in the same direction. You're pulling uh, in, toward the... The, the goal of Christ Jesus and you're glorifying him in the community, you are of one mind. A lot of times our churches have 
counterfeit unity. It's a cheap unity instead of the real thing. It's like being in a family where a person in the family is an alcoholic or an abuser and everybody else just sort of enables that to happen because no one wants to confront him. And there are churches that are like that. Well, the question you might ask is, well, what is sufficient to disturb, their, disturb the peace? Because if I, if I became a busybody, I could find sin in anybody. I could walk around uh, detecting sin in every person and, and making it public. Well, that's not what is called for in Scripture. When we see instances in the Bible of church discipline, every instance is a case where there is persistent, public, unrepentant sin. Persistent, meaning it doesn't stop. Public, meaning it's, it's known to the people of the church. You don't have to stand up in front of the church and say, hey, I caught so-and-so looking at a dirty magazine. No, it's, it's more like everyone knows they're involved in this. The community knows, the church knows. And unrepentant, meaning even, even though they know it's wrong, they keep on doing it. They're not trying to get better. They're not, seeking, uh, they're not seeking change and transformation. They are defiant against the will of God. Those are the sins that have to be confronted. And in case you're still not convinced this is necessary, I want to remind you last year of the series that appeared in the Houston Chronicle. Even if you're not a subscriber to the newspaper, you're probably aware that the Chronicle did a series of articles about Southern Baptist churches that over the past 20 years have allowed youth ministers and even pastors and other people in ministry, volunteers, to continue working, continue serving, even though there's proof that they were involved in sexual misconduct. Uh, youth ministers who had a sexual relationship with a girl in their youth ministry, pastors who seduced a, a widow or a young woman in their church, and they were allowed to continue pastoring. Maybe they had to leave the church they were in, but they went to another church and got a new job, and no one confronted them. No one, no one told them, you're not qualified anymore until you display repentance and transformation and, and redemption. And that did, that was devastating to read, and yet I think the Houston Chronicle did the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ a service by exposing our hypocrisy, by showing us you've got to confront. You can't let this kind of thing go on. Think about all the families that were hurt by those decisions. Think about all the people who would have been believers in Jesus if not for what happened. Sin has to be confronted. Persistent, public, unrepentant sin has to be confronted. Second thing. Our concern when we confront, please hear me when I say this, should always be redemption, not punishment. Our goal should never be to make ourselves look good by pointing out someone else's flaws. Our goal should never be to make someone else suffer. Our goal should be redemption. Redemption of the church, redemption of the person who perpetrated this evil. You know, the procedure in Matthew 18 is outlined that Jesus gave. It's very, very clear. When, when you see a brother sinning or when a brother sins against you, you go to them personally, privately, just the two of you. If anybody ever comes to me and says, hey, Jeff, uh, somebody in the church is, is consistently doing this terrible thing, my response should be, have you confronted them? Your first step shouldn't be to talk to me. Your first step should be to talk to them. And if they won't respond to that kind of confrontation, then you take an elder or a deacon, or you take uh, one or two brothers or sisters with you. And then if, you, if that person won't listen to that small group, that's when you bring it before the church body itself. And, and the purpose is redemption. Jesus says if they still won't listen to the church, what does he say? Then treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. 
Well, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? He loved them. He sought to win them. Do you cut them off from fellowship with the body of Christ? Yeah, for their own good. But your purpose is redemption, not punishment. The purpose is really threefold. You've got to protect the witness of the church in the world. The world is looking at God's people. We have to show them that uh, following Jesus means transformation. We, we're not better than people outside the church, but following Jesus ought to make us better than we used to be. And if it's not, then we're not representing him well. Uh, the purpose is also to protect the spiritual life of your church family. Sebastian Younger wrote an article about he spent months uh, uh, embedded with a, a unit of soldiers in Afghanistan. And one of the things he noticed was the soldiers were constantly holding each other accountable. If a guy, for instance, had his uh, shoelaces untied, his boots untied, another soldier would say, hey, tie those shoes. Because if that guy tripped in the middle of a firefight because his shoes were untied, then someone else in the unit was going to have to help him and they both might get shot. So what one person did wrong affected the entire unit, and that's true of a church. Remember the, the analogy of the leaven in the loaf of bread. Uh, just a little bit of leaven spreads through an entire loaf. In the same way, unrepentant, persistent public sin in a congregation, it may just be one person or one family, but it spreads through the congregation. It affects the whole body of Christ. Again, it is not just about your personal relationship with Jesus. You are a part of a family. And then third, it's to give the sinful brother or sister a chance to repent. It's always, always the hope of repentance and redemption. And then the third thing, the third point from this passage, judge ourselves, not the world. See, we get this backwards, just like the Corinthians. Paul had written to the Corinthians and said, don't associate with people who choose to do wrong things. And the Corinthians took it to mean, oh, separate yourself from the world. Paul says, no, you're not supposed to be separate from the world. If you're separate from the world, how is the world going to hear about Jesus? No, separate from those who persistently misrepresent Jesus because they persistently and unrepentantly commit the same old sins. So hold ourselves within the church to a high standard, but not the world. And this is something that we continually get wrong. We think that it is a sign of our holiness to be separated from the things of this world, uh, for, to, to not have any contact with people who aren't Christians. We, we think it's a sign of our holiness to criticize people outside the church. I love what my wife Carrie says. She says, it's almost like we would rather see people pretend to be Christians than do the hard work of helping them become Christians. She doesn't say it that way. She says it better. But it, we don't really care whether they actually know Jesus. We just want them to act like they do because it makes us feel better to be around people who live and act in moral ways. Why do we spend so much time criticizing non-Christians for acting like non-Christians? Why do we get so bent out of shape over the things we see on television, over the, the, the lifestyle choices of people who aren't part of our faith? They're just acting the way we would act if the Holy Spirit wasn't alive in us. And I've caught flack at times, not often. Uh, man, the, in the time I've been a pastor, I've been blessed with people who were incredibly incredibly encouraging. But from time to time, I've had people come and say, how come you don't preach against this particular sin? Or how come you don't preach against this group of people? And I even had one, one guy at another church say, the problem with you, Jeff, is you want everybody to like us. And I said, no, I, 
I mean, that'd be great, but I know it's never going to happen. That's not my goal. My, my purpose is it's not my business what people out there do. For me to preach against the sins that are committed by people outside the church, what good is that? That just makes us feel superior. My job is to preach to my people and hold us, including me, to a higher standard, to, to encourage us to pursue Christ with everything we've got, constantly examining ourselves, constantly repenting of our sins, and growing in Christ. See, the problem is we want to see ourselves as the good guys. We want to say, okay, we're God's people on earth, and it's those other people out there. It's those people who believe in different religions. They're our enemies, and we have to defeat them. Or it's those people who believe differently than us politically. They're our enemies, and we have to overcome them. And that's not at all what the Scriptures say. Those people aren't our enemies. Those are people that Jesus died for that he deeply loves. And instead of making ourselves feel superior by judging them, our job is to love them and to hold ourselves to a high standard, and to represent Christ well. And that's how the church will be judged. Not because we stubbornly held on to old traditions in spite of a changing world, but because we adapted to a changing world by finding new ways to tell them the gospel, the good news of salvation, while never, ever compromising on the things that Christ has taught us and how we should live. Man, is that easy to do? Absolutely not. None of this is easy. But the good news is we have the Holy Spirit on our side, and he'll guide us. So chapter 5, again, a little more uh, interesting in some ways than the chapters up till now in the sense that there was some controversial stuff, and you may have a problem with some things that I said. So if so, give me an email or, or a phone call or a text message, and we'll talk it through. We need to be uh, of one mind, one spirit. But... Let us pray for our church that we would be unified and bold and courageous enough to hold one another accountable because there's a world out there that's counting on us to live out the faith of Jesus Christ so they can see what it really looks like. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for loving us, for showing us the right way to live, and for being, Lord Jesus, our once and for all time Passover lamb because of you we are saved. Because of you, we're holy. Lord, help us to live that way. And when we see a brother stumble, help us to pick him up. And when we see someone who is headed in the wrong direction, give us the boldness and the courage to confront them. Make us the kind of church that loves people enough to tell them the truth. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week. I uh, hope to worship with you Sunday morning. And well, Love you and miss you. God bless you.